Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jacqueline Meredith. This episode features expert insight from a webinar titled, Clinical Impact of New Data on Complicated Clinical Infection, Independent Conference Coverage of ECMA 2023, featuring Dr. David Van Dyme, Professor of Medicine and Director of Immunocompromised Host Infectious Diseases Program at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. For the full online educational program, including downloadable slides, please visit the link in the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what Dr. Van Dyme has to say about new data on complicated clinical infections from ECMID 2023. Hi everyone, and thank you for joining and thank you for that excellent um, introduction. So we'll start with a couple of sessions that I wanted to highlight on gram-negative resistance. Uh, the first one, covered KPC producers, or Klebsiella pneumoniae carbapenemase. And it looked specifically at a newer drug, meropenem vaporbactam, in KPC-producing carbapenem-resistant enterobacterialis infections. And on this slide, you can see their study design. And this was a real-world study looking at the use of meropenem vaporbactam in the U.S., and what was nice here is that they were able to get some PK data as well on a subset of these patients. So they had 37 patients, so a relatively small sample size. As you can see, a fair number of these patients were transplant recipients. They had a, a Charlson and an Apache score that indicated that both chronic comorbidities as well as acute comorbidities that were, uh, that were present and treatment was often initiated in the ICU, again, sort of a, a testament to the uh, illness of the, of the patients that were involved. About a third of the patients were on renal replacement therapy. And then there was a predominance of the use of monotherapy, so without any other um, uh, active agents. And when you look at the KPC type, as, as we've seen in other uh, studies from the US at least, KPC2 and KPC3 were the most common Carbapenemases. Uh, so then, when we look at the outcomes, they had clinical success at day 30 at, in 68% of these patients. Microbiological failure at day 90 was seen in 11 patients with a median time to failure of 38 days. And in eight of these 11 patients, this was deemed to be either a persistent or recurrent infection, whereas in three, this was just thought to be colonization. And this was something that was really interesting about this study is that they looked at subsequent CRE isolates, which were present in 15 patients, one of whom developed treatment emergent resistant to meropenem vaporbactam. Two other patients had, did have a, a quite significant MIC increase, but it stayed within the realm of susceptibility for those isolates. And some of the reasons for uh, clinical failure with death in six patients, lack of clinical improvement in three patients, recurrent infection in two, and persistent bacteremia in one. So then switching to the pharmacokinetic results, they had 96 samples from 21 patients, and they used 17 patients who had at least three samples to uh, determine the PK parameters. And they had serial uh, blood cultures at, at three different uh, time periods, with five, seven, and eight uh, as the later uh, trough time periods. And what was quite nice about the study was that they had uh, different uh, renal function groups. Again, this being a real-world study and the patients that this drug is being used in, 
uh, being quite ill. So you really want to make sure that in a variety of settings of renal failure, uh, how the drug uh, performs. Uh, so they did see significant interpatient variability of meropenem, as has also been described in, in other studies, but the exposure exceeded target of 100% time over MIC and 100% time over four times the MIC in, in all patients. And for uh, vaporbactam, they were looking at the area under the curve over MIC as the target, and this was also exceeded in all patients. So the peaky target exposures were met for both meropenem and vaporbactam. So Moving on to our next topic, carbapenem-resistant Acinetobacter barmanii. And this was a real-world uh, observational follow-up to the uh, credible CR study. So in the credible CR study, there were higher mortality rates observed in patients getting cefidrocol versus best available therapy for Acinetobacter infections. And so what they did here was they had a single-center observational study with a relatively small sample size of 73 patients who were all in the COVID ICU with ventilator-associated pneumonia and also concomitant bloodstream infection caused by Acinetobacter. Colistin-containing regimens were used in most of the patients in 74%, and then sulfidocol-containing regimens were used in 19 patients, and all of those got some sort of a combination therapy. So they wanted to specifically see how does cefidrocol do when used in combination? Can we get some sort of indication from this observational data set? As you can see, a lot of patients uh, were, were quite ill with 67% of patients developing uh, septic shock, and there were no differences in the parameters that they looked at between the two groups. But there was a quite substantial difference in the both the 14-day uh, mortality and the 30-day mortality when patients on cefidrocol-containing regimens were compared to those on colistin-containing regimens. So, and here you see that the survival curve that goes with that, and they did some adjustment also for a variety of, of factors to try to get some approximation of the effect of confounding by indication. And they did this both through regression analysis and also through propensity score analysis. And it, with both those uh, corrections, uh, being on a cefidrocol-containing uh, regimen, and especially being on the regimen of cefidrocol plus phosphomycin, was associated with improved survival. Moving on to Pseudomonas, and this was another uh, real-world study looking at the use of imipanamrelobactam, and this was uh, a little bit different in, in design. They used this large healthcare database called the Premier database, which is a really large uh, database that, that covers a large percentage of uh, U.S. hospitals. But of course, you're limited uh, in, in the types of data that are going to be available in, in a database like this. Uh, so they were able to um, get together uh, data on 160 patients. And when you look here at the characteristics, you can again see that similar to these other sort of ways that, that these other new agents are being used, that patients are quite sick. So lots of patients in the ICU, more than half of the patients on mechanical ventilation, 40% with septic shock. And then looking at the infection types for which Imirel was used, uh, HAPVAP was the most common in over half of the patients, and then CUTI and intra-abdominal infections in smaller percentages. In uh, the, the pathogen 
uh, data was only available for uh, 37 patients, so a pretty small uh, subset for, for a study that really focuses on uh, the use of an antibiotic. And in most of those patients, Pseudomonas was the pathogen. And in about a third of patients, it was a polymicrobial infection with two or more uh, pathogens present. Uh, specific patterns of resistance, uh, again, was mostly multidrug-resistant Pseudomonas with a few ESBL or uh, CRE. So looking then at the um, uh, treatment characteristics, so the, uh, the status of the patient, again, uh, if you looked at all patients, they were in the ICU about half the time, but in the half-VAP group, that was higher. And again, generally speaking, the half-VAP group was, uh, appeared to be sicker at, at baseline, as you would expect. It also took a longer time from admission to the start of Imiral. Uh, in that half-VAP group, 17 days versus eight days. The median duration was similar in, in both these groups of all patients and uh, the subset of half-VAP patients with uh, seven days as a median. And you can see that the, the interquartile range is, is fairly broad between four and 13. Looking at the outcomes, long length of stay, uh, 25 in the whole group and 32 days in the half-VAP group. ICU uh, also a long uh, stay in the ICU with 27 and 29 days, and also relatively high all-cause in-hospital mortality with 24 and 39%. When you look at the 30-day all-cause mortality, that was 21% and 31% in those patients with HAP-VAP, who we already talked about were sicker on the onset. And also uh, readmission rates were noted to be 17% and 9% in these two groups. So as the take-home points for uh, these gram-negative resistance study, meropenem uh, vaporbactam was effective in treating KPC-producing infections with optimal exposures observed in predominantly critically ill patients. In an observational study, survival benefit was seen among patients receiving cefidrocol-containing regimens as combination therapy, importantly, versus colistin-containing regimens for treatment of acinetobacter VAP with concomitant BSI. And again, important to note here that common combination that was used with cefetocol was phosphomycin. And then finally, little data is available on imipen and relobactam use for the treatment of MDRO infections. And the real-world data provided here gives some initial understanding of how this drug is being used uh, in the U.S., that is, uh, especially amongst patients with HAP-VAP caused by multidrug-resistant pseudomonas. So moving on to antimicrobial stewardship. First study I want to discuss is the so-called Simplify study that looked at antibiotic de-escalation for monomicrobial enterobacterialis bloodstream infection. So this was an interesting design where they looked at patients who turned out to have monobacterial enterobacterialis bloodstream infection, but who were initially treated with an anti-pseudomonal beta-lactam drug. So at the time of uh, susceptibility results, they had 48 hours to be enrolled in this study and could either be randomized to the de-escalation arm in which they were switched to an in vitro active drug that was set by a, a certain list and, and we'll show you what they switched to, or they were randomized to continue that antipsychotic beta-lactam empirically. Primary outcome was clinical cure three to five days after end of treatment with a 10% non-inferiority margin. Secondary outcomes included 60-day mortality, infection recurrences, 
and development of CDI, uh, so Clostridium difficile infection. They also did a desirability of outcome ranking analysis at day uh, 60, which uh, had as the, the best rank that you were cured without incidences and the worst rank uh, was death. So then looking at the, the drugs that people were switched to in the de-escalation arm, so you see them listed here, ampicillin, amoxicillin, flavolanic acid, Cutramoxazole, cefiroxim, cefiraxin, or cefataxim was used in about a third, so that was the, the single most common one. And then ciprofloxacin and erdapenem were also used. And there was also a step down to oral therapy allowed with specific guidance given in the protocol. When you look here at the distribution, both of the organisms that were involved, you can see that E. coli was by far the, the most common one, and also the sources of, of bacteremia with biliary tract and urinary tract being uh, most common in, in both treatment arms. And one thing that is a little bit different from a lot of other enterobacterialis bloodstream infection studies is this, this predominance of uh, biliary tract disease, which is probably explained by the requirement that people had to be started on antipsychotic beta-lactam. So these tended to be patients where there was a, a broader initial treatment. So then looking at the outcomes that they uh, observed, so overall, there was no, no difference between the two arms uh, with clinical cure being slightly uh, in favor of the de-escalation arm, 90% versus uh, 89%, so really pretty much essentially the same. Relapses at day uh, 60 were also quite similar at 6% versus 11%. Death at day 60 at uh, 5% versus 5%, so again, really identical numbers. And then clostridium clostridioides, I should say, infection was quite uncommon and occurred in, in one patient in each group. And there were also no differences seen in their uh, door analyses. And it's important to note that when you do a door analysis, 50% is the um, sort of no difference uh, mark. So switching to the next study, the so-called SOAP uh, study that looked at a switch from IV to oral antibiotics which of course is quite interesting because this is something that we do quite commonly already in monomicrobial enterobacterialis bloodstream infection. Uh, so it was nice that they put this in a randomized controlled trial. This was done in the Middle East. And unfortunately, this study had to be stopped early because of COVID-19 related issues. So you see here that they looked at adults with monomicrobial enterobacterialis bloodstream infection susceptible to an oral beta-lactam fluoroquinolone or trimetoprim sulfamatoxazole with adequate source control. These patients had to be quite stable, so they had to have been afebrile, had to have a good blood pressure, not, be, not need any help with their, their blood pressure. It couldn't be neutropenic, and they had to be getting already IV therapy for three to five days. They were then randomized to switching to an oral antibiotic or to continue their IV antibiotic with a primary outcome of treatment failure, which was a composite with the components that you can see here within 90 days, and they used a 10% non-inferiority margin in the modified intention to treat population. So looking at the baseline characteristics in this uh, study, they were pretty well matched. The chosen comorbidity score was three, indicating sort of a moderate chronic comorbidity uh, load. Uh, the feedback remit score in both groups was quite low at one, so that would be predictive of a lower uh, associated mortality. 
Uh, and then you see the distribution of the uh, ultimate antimicrobial that, that patients ended up on. So cephalosporins were used in both groups quite commonly, as were beta-lactamase, beta-lactamase inhibitor combination. Topopenems were obviously only used in the IV group, whereas fluoroquinolones and uh, trimetrophim sulfamethoxazole were only used in the oral group. Urinary tract infections were the most common, as is mostly the case in these types of studies, as we've discussed already. And then uh, of the specific enterobacterials that were isolated, again, as is mostly uh, the case in these types of studies, E. coli was about present in about two-thirds of patients. So looking at outcomes in this study, you can see that treatment failure occurred in about 22% uh, versus 26% in favor of the oral group, and hospital length of stay was lower in the oral group versus the IV group. So quite uh, promising that you can see a similar uh, treatment failure rate and a shorter hospital length of stay. One uh, sort of side note on this, and the authors unfortunately didn't really go into this during their presentation, but when you look at the door outcomes, so this again is a desirability of outcome ranking, uh, which is an ordinal uh, outcome, you can see that the percentage of patients in the oral group who remain on any kind of antibiotics, be it oral or IV, is in total higher at 63% versus the IV group, where it's 45%. So it seems to have resulted in longer total antibiotic treatment durations, which were uh, at the discretion of the treating physician. Moving on to the REGARD-VAP study, which was looking at whether antibiotic duration for ventilator-associated pneumonia could be further shortened. This was a trial that was done in Nepal, Thailand, and Singapore, pragmatic trial. Patients were uh, randomized to uh, short durations, which could mean stopping antibiotics immediately uh, as early as day three if culture negative or day five if culture positive. First, the standard of care, which was at least eight days, and then stopping on, based on uh, physician preference. Uh, so the stopping criteria was that uh, patients had to be aprabile and, and otherwise uh, hemodynamically stable. Primary outcome was mortality at day 60 or a pneumonia recurrence with a non-inferiority margin of 12%. And then some secondary outcomes are listed here as well. So looking then at the results, they found that the median antibiotic duration, as you can imagine, would be shorter in the short duration. Uh, with six days with an interquartile range of five to seven versus 14 days in the standard of care. So pretty significant uh, benefit, I would say. And in the day 60 outcomes, these were uh, quite similar for the mortality outcomes, uh, in fact, somewhat in favor of the, uh, numerically in favor, I should say, of the shorter duration. So take home from these antimicrobial stewardship studies, were that the Simplify study showed that antibiotic de-escalation from an antipsychotic beta-lactam was non-inferior to continuing that drug. In the SOAP study, switching to oral antibiotics after an IV lead-in therapy was non-inferior to continuing IV therapy. And in the REGARD-VAP study, shortened antibiotic treatment guided by clinical criteria was non-inferior to longer treatment duration. So really uh, supportive of a lot of stewardship efforts that are already being done. So we'll switch to investigational agents. And first, I just quickly want to cover uh, Solbactam, Durlobactam. The uh, attack trial was already covered at 
ID Week, and I'll just briefly mention this here. You can see the main result uh, in the slide with uh, Soldor being uh, non-inferior to colistin in 28-day all-cause mortality uh, with an, suddenly a numeric uh, benefit of Soldor of 19% versus 32% in the colistin arm. And then what they presented here at ECMIT was in their uh, part B of this uh, study, there were uh, patients enrolled who had colistin resistant uh, organisms or couldn't tolerate colistin. And they looked at specific uh, sites with outbreaks of colistin resistant uh, acinetobacter. And 19 of those patients had those uh, colistin resistant acinetobacter with all but one isolate susceptible to sulbactam durlobactam, so really a, a promising agent for that uh, really challenging group. 16 of these patients actually ended up getting uh, sulbactam durlobactam uh, with an 87.5% survival at day 28. So again, a very promising result. And then lastly, I just want to cover two agents uh, that are sort of in the in the pipeline. Jepidacin is was studied in the Eagle 2 and Eagle 3 studies and was non-inferior to nitrofurantoin for uncomplicated uh, cystitis, and even superior in the EAGLE-3 study with some higher rates of nausea noted with the new drug. And then in the SURE-2 study, that they looked at solipenem, and they compared it to ertapenem followed by either oral ciprofloxacin or amoxicillin clavulanate, and unfortunately found that solipenem was not non-inferior to ertapenem, and this was driven primarily by uh, lower rates of asymptomatic bacteria in those patients who received either ertapenem or uh, ciprofloxacin. All right, then we'll get to questions and answers. And I have a number of questions here in the, um, in the chat that I will uh, start going to. So, uh, a question from Quinton is, for a ventilator-associated pneumonia caused by a carbapenem-resistant acinetobacter bimaniae with no susceptibilities showing on the micropanel, could I start a combination regimen with cefidocol and a second agent before knowing if either agent has susceptibility? Do you have a recommendation about that second agent? So, yes, th so that's a great question. I don't think we really have a clear answer yet. And for the use of fitocol, of course, the, the, the specter in the room, the elephant in the room is still the, the credible uh, CR uh, results that, that really indicate uh, there was a higher mortality in the fitocol-treated uh, patients. Uh, again, these observational data seem to suggest that maybe fitocol in combination with a second agent is a better option. And, and certainly that, that is you know, biologically possible. So if you have a patient who is uh, not suitable for colistin-containing uh, regimen, and you don't have access to other uh, active agents uh, like the sulbactam durlobactam, uh, it could certainly be reasonable to give a combination treatment with cefidocol. And I would probably flip this on its head and say, if you are using cefidocol for acinetobacter uh, specifically, I would add a second agent, and the choice of that second agent really depends on your uh, local pharmacy. So do you have IV phosphomycin, or if you're in the U.S., then you, you won't have access to that drug. So you can use high-dose uh, ampicillin sulbactam, for instance, or, or a number of other possible secondary agents. All right, let me go to the second question. This one is from Jacqueline. In what patients would you recommend the use of mirapenem vapobactam? Cefidocol or 
independent rail about them. So, yes, I think the, the, the specific niches of these drugs continues to be defined and, and, and probably will evolve over time as well. I think at the current time, especially uh, sort of in my US-based practice, I think of meropenem vapobacterum as primarily a CRE drug, so copopenem-resistant enterobacterialis, and that's primarily because it, it um, performs well in, in the most common uh, mechanisms of resistance, which are in the US, either no copopenemase present or a KPC copopenemase present. So for that, of course, you do want to know the, the, either the, the, the genotype or that there is a phenotypic susceptibility to meropenem vapobactum. The call is uh, yeah, still sort of a, a more of a second line agent. It's not really a specific uh, group of patients or, or organisms where sofitocol is currently first line. We have used it some in um, uh, stentrophomonas. Uh, of course, very limited uh, clinical data available, but the in vitro data uh, do support that use. And then for imipenem relobactam, uh, this can also be used in, in CRE as well as in resistant, uh, in carbapenem resistant uh, pseudomonas as well. Uh, again, with the caveat that, that you really want to show uh, susceptibility. So uh, then a question from, from Allison. Will the new study results on use of cefitocol in acinetobacter change the recommended use of high-dose ampicillin sulbactam as preferred agent? So I can only uh, really uh, uh, speculate, but in general, an, a sort of a smallish observational study would not have sufficient power to really uh, change guideline, uh, guideline recommendations. Uh, of course, the, if you're referring to the IDSA guidance uh, recommendation, these are, are really, especially in acinetobacter, where, where the, uh, the evidence is not quite that strong, are more suggestions rather than strong uh, recommendations as you would get from, from a guideline. So there may be uh, you know, the addition of, of more of a footnote of, about using sphytocol in combination therapy, but I think uh, people still favor the use of high-dose ampicillin sulbactam. And then, of course, the uh, arrival of sulbactam, durlobactam is, is quite um, anticipated. Another question from, from Jacqueline about the types of agents that you can uh, use as a step-down for oral therapy in patients with enterobacterialis uh, bloodstream infection. Yes, I think that the most experience certainly is with those oral agents that are known to have really good oral bioavailability. So these are gonna be your, your um, uh, fluoroquinolones, so uh, superfloxacin, levofloxacin, as well as trimetoprim, uh, sulfamethoxazole. Uh, there is some debate over the use of uh, beta-lactams in this setting. Beta-lactams are, there, there's sometimes some concern about their effectiveness. And uh, I think that, that that's really an, an issue that's actively being studied and where, where people are getting uh, more experience. But I would say it's already, even though, again, there's really to date not strong uh, randomized control trial data to support this, but doing an oral step down to a quinolone or to trimetoprim sulfamethoxazole is pretty commonly done in clinical practice. Of course, a factor that, that complicates this is that we don't yet really know how many days is sufficient in most of these patients. So it may turn out that if you give somebody five days, for instance, and you give them another two days of an oral agent, that those five days of an IV may in and of itself be sufficient. 
All right, then I think maybe the last question from uh, Jason is about a patient that he saw with a polymicrobial foot infection that turned out to be an osteomyelitis, so bone infection. So these uh, infections certainly be, can be quite challenging. Ended up with an amputation and a pick line infectious disease, only treated him for 11 days with IV antibiotics using uh, the ceftriaxone. Do you think this was an appropriate length of time for the pick line? Uh, he went on to have more osteomyelitis developed and three more surgeries and ended up in a below-the-knee amputation. I'm sorry to hear about this case. So in general, uh, obviously, it's hard for me to comment about a case that I that I know very little about. When we try to make these kind of recommendations on duration, uh, one thing that we really try to figure out to, to the best of our ability is in the setting of osteomyelitis, where there is at least a partial amputation performed, it is, of course, a crucial difference whether all the infected bone has been removed at the time of amputation. If that is the case, then usually a shorter duration as sort of a you know, skin and soft tissue type of treatment would be uh, effective. If that's not the case, then usually a longer duration would be required. But unfortunately, sometimes you think you know, and then it turns out that, that you don't. The other thing I would say regarding IV treatment versus oral treatment, we do have um, you know, a large randomized trial that pretty convincingly shows that you can use an oral step down in the setting of osteomyelitis, uh, so that it would certainly be appropriate if you have you know, organisms that are susceptible to oral agents to treat them with, with oral agents after an IV induction. So let me stop there. Thank you again for, for your time and for your attention. Thank you very much to our faculty and thank you for our listeners for joining in. Please be sure to check back for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thank you and have a great day.